Welcome to the AERA Writing and Literacies SIG podcast. My name is Alex Corbett. And my name is Karis Jones. And today we have the unique honor to speak with Tanana Reeve Dew and Dr. Ebony Elizabeth Thomas. Their writing and scholarship spans a variety of genres, disciplines, and forms. The theme of this podcast is for guests to share their work, mentor other writers and scholars, and to cite folks who inspire their work. Before we begin with the questions, we'll start with some formal introductions. I'm a lecturer at UCLA in the African American Studies Department, where I teach a class on Black horror right now called The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic. And in the spring, I'll be teaching my Afrofuturism course, which is more inclusive, not just of horror, but obviously science fiction, futurism, magical realism, uh, fantasy, all of that uh, combined. And I've been teaching at UCLA for about four years. They, they invited me to come in and I've been thrilled to do it. And my latest publication, one of my few, because I'm a fiction writer, before I began teaching, I was a writer. <laughs> so I don't do a lot of academic writing, but my last academic essay was in the, uh, the annotated screenplay for Jordan Peele's Get Out because he asked me to write the introduction. So that's uh, oh my, my introduction called Get Out and the Black Horror Aesthetic. And uh, yeah, that's me. Oh boy, I'm just fangirling here and I'm trying not to fangirl, I'm trying to, but I, I am such a fan of Professor Dews. Um, one of my um, first, um, I think maybe the very first Black um, horror book that I ever read was hers. I was an undergraduate at FAMU, and I want to, um, was it, was it The Living Blood? Uh, was it, I'm trying to remember, it was, um, your book that came out, was it in 96? or 97 then it was my soul to keep my soul to keep yes 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 yes, yes. <laughs> my soul to keep and I remember buying it from Amin Ra bookstore and like oh my gosh because before you the only horror I had ever read was what Stephen King right because that's what I grew up. so just thank you and okay now that I'm over my fangirl gush I should talk about who um, I am. Well, I got, I came to this work because I was a fangirl. So I started off in Harry Potter fandom. My name is Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, and I'm associate professor of reading, writing, and literacy in the Department of Literacy and International um, Education at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. I've been a professor for about 10 years. Before that, I was a K-12 teacher in Detroit, Michigan, and I was also a huge fangirl. So I've been a member of over um, a dozen fandoms um, over the past 25 years. And so I um, came to this work of studying, um, you know, the experiences of fans from the margin. So um, first um, Black fans, but then I expanded my considerations to think about fans of color. And now I'm thinking about all fans um, of speculative fiction genres from the margins. And when I say fans, I'm thinking about readers, viewers, and audiences. So that's me. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, and that's a great um, transition to our first question, which is about um, sharing more about your work and putting it in conversation with each other. Um, so our question is, how does your work 
rethink or resist the conventions of speculative fiction? And then um, I have kind of like a follow-up question. What conventions of speculative fiction need to be reworked? And how are you as scholars challenging these conventions in similar or different ways? That's an interesting question. And, you know, listening to um, Dr. Elizabeth speak uh, <laughs> reminds me of when I did start way back in the when. Um, 1997 was my second publication. My first novel, The Between, was published in 1995. And back then, I did not know any other Black horror writers. There have been some, but I did not know. I had never read horror by a Black author myself. I hadn't even read Octavia Butler yet. So Octavia Butler had been publishing for years, but I did not discover Octavia Butler until after I was already writing My Soul to Keep. And someone said to me, oh, have you read Octavia Butler's novel about the immortal African? <laughs> because my novel is about an immortal African. And I was like, <gasps> you know. So, so this is all to say that there was quite a bit of loneliness for me at the outset. I did not understand that it was even okay for me to write genre. I had gotten not so subtle messages while I was an undergraduate at Northwestern. I, I graduated from Northwestern University with a degree in journalism, but a minor as a creative writing, I did all the requirements that a creative writing major would have done. And during that time, reading the classics, reading the canon, you get both the sort of erasure of yourself as a black person in literature, in the canon, so-called, and also the not so subtle genre bias, both of them in, in tandem. So it was not okay for me in any way, shape or form to be a black genre writer in my head, uh, I started writing epiphany stories, housewives. In fact, by the time I was an undergraduate, and certainly by the time I was in graduate school at the University of Leeds, where I got a degree in English, a master's in English, I was writing white characters. And I wasn't even really writing genre. So there, there was none of me reflected in my work. Like I was 200 pages in to a novel from a white male perspective that had nothing to do with genre <laughs> before I... I ran out of material because I was not writing about myself. My, I had never been in New York. I never had a brother. I mean, I was reaching for things that were not organic to my own, <laughs> my own thinking, my own experiences. And it, and it really did take some time to give myself permission, A, to be a Black writer who, not having had an, a rural experience, for example, like all my heroes and, uh, and my heroines were, were Alice Walker and Toni Morrison, right? Um, and it wasn't until Gloria Naylor wrote Mama Day and had the metaphysical aspect to it that I realized, oh, you could be a black woman who writes the metaphysical and that's okay, right? Uh, and then and so-called, and, and then an interview with Anne Rice on another level helped me learn that you could be respected while writing speculative fiction, which again, was something very important to me. I should point out, Dr. Elizabeth mentioned she, she graduated from FAMU. My parents were civil rights activists who met at FAMU. My late mother, Patricia Stevens Dew, my father, attorney John Dew. And that was quite a legacy I felt that I had to live up to. So when I say I wasn't allowed to, I mean, I did not have internal permission to do anything foolish. And if I perceived that there was no respect for horror, no respect for genre, then it's no wonder it took me a while to make my way back around to it. And having come up through that canon of the classics and, and the Canterbury Tales and all the way through, you know, the Faulkner and the, 
of course, I had to look for myself even as a black person and how a black person fits in. So in terms of challenging conventions, it's always been from the standpoint of representation, just finding myself, creating characters who looked like me, who acted like me, uh, just middle class suburban characters. That was my first novel in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was where I had grown up. I had never seen that in literature. I mean, I, I, it's kind of my boy to be, but I really had never seen that in literature. Mm -hmm. So I had to really go out on a limb to declare me as a writer. And me was someone who, who had grown up, you know, sort of between worlds and the suburbs and, and dealing with this sort of liberal racism as opposed to old school Jim Crow racism, you know, back in the day. And, and that was, was, was a tough, it was a tough uh, path. It was a tough realization for me to make that I could actually exist in my own work. Wow. And I just remember when we found your work, my friends and I, you know, I hung out with a bookish crowd. I mean, you, your work was like a shooting star for us. The, I mean, because there was you, we had your series, we had um, Octavia Butler, and I'm trying to think of who appeared or who emerged in adult speculative fiction with Black women protagonists before 2000. And um, there just wasn't a ton. And so I did um, read once I was, um, I, um, I think The Living Blood came out when I was maybe a new teacher, right? So it was, um, yeah. But um, I just remember reading your books, Octavia Butler's books. Then there was The Dark Matter. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, anthology and its sequel by Sheree Renee Thomas. Yes, Sheree Renee Thomas. Sheree, and yes, that Sheree, yes. Groundbreaking, Dark yes. Matter. Yes. So, I mean, I just remember looking for what you had and looking for myself or trying to find traces of myself in the genres which I preferred because growing up in inner city Detroit, I I was always looking for an escape. And unfortunately, so many of the escapes that were offered to us did not feature any kinds of characters that looked like us. So whenever you were to read Black fiction, by the time I was a little girl in the 80s, um, it was as if um, beyond Virginia Hamilton's work, mm -hmm. you we're supposed to be learning something, you know? So what would happen is you would read um, the classics. So Alice in Wonderland, um, The Wizard of Oz, et cetera. And then you would say, you know, you go to your teacher or librarian and you would say, well, I'd like to read a story with a little black girl in it. And then you would get a story about Harriet Tubman or, you know, you would get a story about, and I love her. I mean, I cried oceans when I read the final book in the Logan family saga. So I loved Cassie Logan from Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. So I read that whole series avidly and felt a very personal connection to it. But that literature isn't exactly escapist. So it's the kind of story that I would read, you know, in order to be enlightened, to learn, and to admire the characters in it. So I was like, wow, my ancestors and my elders were some strong people. And again, like um, Professor Dew said, you know, I, I don't need to be playing around here. But, you know, unfortunately, when I was coming up, if you wanted to dream or imagine, you know, you really had to turn. Once I was done with reading um, 
the, the little bit we had out there, I was, you know, reading Anne of Green Gables. I was reading the Chronicles of Narnia. And I'm not saying that those stories are terrible, um, you know, um, and, you know, because millions of kids have read those growing up, but they just aren't very inclusive of children who aren't um, white, upper middle class, cisgender, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the things I've been so passionate about over the course of my um, time as a fan, as a K-12 teacher, and now, um, you know, finishing my first decade as a professor is thinking about race and representation in the media that we give to children and teens and young adults, because so much of that does shape consciousness. It shapes our, you know, collective imagination. It shapes our sense of not only who we are ourselves, but it also teaches us how to treat each other. I, if, may I jump in again? Also, I want to apologize. I've been calling you Dr. Elizabeth instead That's of that. fine. I answer to that too. That's my, my whole, I have a double name. So Ebony Elizabeth, that's my, that's gra yes, my grandmother's name was Elizabeth and that was going to be my name, but it was a 70s. So my mom just said Ebony. On top. Okay. Got it. <laughs> I totally understand. Wait, yes. but you brought back the memories when you mentioned Dark Matter, that first anthology of Black mm -hmm. Speculative Fiction edited by Cherie Renee Thomas. It included Octavia Butler. I was in there. My husband, yes. Stephen Barnes, was in there. And that came soon after I met Steve and Octavia at a conference in 1997, which I think did signal the beginning of this blooming of representation among uh, Black writers, at least, in speculative fiction. It was at Clark Atlanta University, and it was the African-American Fantastic Imagination uh, Explorations in Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. And on the basis of my first novel, The Between, I was invited. I had never been in a room of readers and scholars who appreciated and read speculative fiction. I mean, even after I published, um, it, was, it was sort of, I was at the horror events where it was mostly white and at the black bookstores where they really had to sometimes talk to people and say, no, no, this is not going to curse you if you read that. <laughs> If you read this book, <laughs> you know, so I was, I was overcoming barriers wherever I went. And this was Clark Atlanta was the first time I was with what I would consider family. We took a photograph that day and it, and it was hugely inspirational to realize that I was not alone. Oh, wow. I'm just, and by the way, um, your husband's um, duology, the Lion's Blood duology, yeah. that was the first time I had read um, any alternate history by and featuring Black folks. I was Isn't it amazing. Quite, it was too, yes. Oh, man, I tell you. So I, yeah, I'm just so passionate about it. And I'm so thrilled to see the burgeoning over the past uh, 20 or 25 yeah. years. There's so much more out there now for those coming after us. So, you know, you didn't have, you know, you were trailblazing in ways that, you know, um, so many of us who came after appreciated. Now there's a generation coming up who have all these books. Oh, no, they're all now. Yeah. <laughs> I know. They just don't know. But <laughs> they have it. You could fight okay. It's like, do you understand <laughs> how groundbreaking that movie is and how hard right. it was? How much capital had to be expelled to get to that point? But it's true. When I started teaching Afrofuturism uh, at, at UCLA, I could only point to a short film by Wanuri Kahiu, Kupumzi, uh, the Kenyan filmmaker. 
um, because there just wasn't a lot of so-called Afrofuturism on film. I could find That's it in fun. literature. There was Octavia, mm -hmm. there was Steve, there was me, there were Nala Hopkinson, all these writers. But when it came mm -hmm. to film, mm -hmm. very little. And that, that is a big change just in four years. Now there's almost yes. too much. Now I feel like I have to <laughs> bifurcate the class into like specific topics or specific themes because there's so much Afrofuturism now. Yeah, I have a question for you about that. One of the things that, oh wait, can I ask questions? <laughs> okay. Um, so, Professor Duke, because I'm, I've been talking with other um, theorists and scholars and some young authors about this. Do you think now we have enough in the category to begin thinking about subgenres or are people already thinking about some subcategories there? I was, I'd love to hear more about that from you. Well, there are. Um, and, and my definition of Afrofuturism is somewhat broad. When I say yeah. Afrofuturism, I really mean the Black uh, speculative arts, meaning okay. music, mm -hmm. graphic novels, films, literature of the African diaspora, right? Okay. Now, there are some people who look at Afrofuturism as more American and more I dealing see. specifically with futurity, specifically science fiction. So I, I would say that despite all of the, and the Black Speculative Arts Movement has emerged as another name for it because some people feel like Afrofuturism is a little bit of a Columbus syndrome because it was named by a cultural critic rather than named from within, Mark Derry, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. there are many definitions here at play. But to answer your question specifically, yes, I think clearly because there is so much, uh, no matter what any individual's idea of what Afrofuturism is, like for instance, Nnedi Okorafor, uh, the Nigerian-American writer, has been um, really publicizing the, the term African futurism, That's which is right. there, right? And Pumzi, the film that I teach and still do teach when I teach Afrofuturism is absolutely African futurism. It's an African creator. It's an African story. And, and the African mm -hmm. continent itself is so vast that I'm mm -hmm. sure you could have subgenres just within that. If you really, at once more and more African artists feel permission, as I did, to write speculative fiction, of course, so it'll be uh, the Caribbean, it'll be Africa. But, but mm -hmm. to me, I, maybe it's because my first name, Tanana Reeve, used to be the capital city of Madagascar, and, and I have sort of felt that connection to Africa my whole life. When I think of Black and Afrofuturism, to me, it is, a di I, you know, it's the diaspora. Yes. No, I, 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 I truly um, agree with you that, you know, um, thinking of it expansively makes more sense than um, sort of, you know, narrowing it. Although I have read that essay um, um, that she placed on her blog, um, Nettie Horfor placed on her blog, and I can completely understand. But, you know, I also think that there's so much in Afrofuturist work um, that does speak to um, the diasporic experience, which is also super valid, you know, so it is, they, you know, they're different experiences. We, I want it all. So I want both and all more. Yeah, <laughs> all these Americans, the descendants of slaves, people who yeah. were never enslaved, but who lived under colonization. I, there's yes. so many similar trails that these, that these stories take, even though we had different experiences. Yeah. 